0: Welcome back to Taiwan Security Review. My name is Alex Gray, and today we're very honored to have Ambassador Kelly Craft, former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations under President Trump, also a former U.S. Ambassador to Canada. Ambassador Craft has been a leading voice on important issues involving international organizations, the role of China in the UN system, and importantly for this program, uh, the role of Taiwan and Taiwan's international space. Uh, particularly within the UN system in an environment where the People's Republic of China has sought to exclude Taiwan from important uh, UN uh, specialized agencies and also from the UN system itself. Ambassador Kraft has been uh, particularly eloquent on Taiwan's involvement in organizations like the uh, World Health Assembly and the World Health Organization, uh, particularly in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. So it's a great honor to have the ambassador on our program today to talk more about uh, Taiwan's role within uh, international organizations and how Taiwan fits into the ongoing competition with China as it's playing out uh, in these international bodies. Ambassador, welcome. Thanks for being here. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. And, you know, this is
1: this is such an important issue. And, and I will tell you, at this at this moment, there's really no place I'd rather be than to speak about our our affinity for Taiwan and their and, and their place, not only in the United Nations community, but their place in the world.
0: Well, I think we're we're really at an important Point both in in Taiwan's role in the world and also uh, an inflection point in in US relations with Taiwan in the broader Indo-Pacific. So this conversation couldn't be more timed, more aptly timed. And and I think for the audience, um, you really were one of the leading voices in the administration. On Taiwan policy under President Trump, and so I, I, you have a, a unique perspective both on the United Nations and what goes on there, but also on Taiwan and how it fits into the international system. So we're we're very grateful for your time.
1: Thank you. You know, and and upon my, my very my first week uh, as U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, you know, we have our our formal courtesy calls. To the P5, and and one of my very first calls was to China. And, you know, I immediately, I think within the probably the first 10 seconds, challenged him on a a proposed visit to China. I wanted to actually see for myself the Uyghurs, and he kind of laughed at me. He laughed it off. (laughs) And, you know, that's just, they, they laugh off things now because they have more self confidence because they are pretty integrated within the UN system. And that's something that they can laugh off, but we need to take that very serious.
0: Well, that that gets to my first question, Ambassador. I mean, from from the front row seat that you had, how did you see the People's Republic of China using the UN and the UN system uh, to their advantage? How How did they work the levers of power in Turtle Bay to advance the Chinese Communist Party's interests? Well, first of all, I think it's
1: important for people to understand that China, the Communist Chinese Party heads up four of the 15 specialized agencies, and these four to me are are vitally important to our, our security and economy, and that is the ICAO, the Civil Aviation, the ITU, which is telecoms, FAO, Food and Agriculture, and UNIDO, Industrial Development. So they They have four of the most important areas within the UN, and if not for the hard work that my mission did when I was there, they probably would have had control of WIPO. Thankfully, we have Singapore in control, but that took six to eight months of daily conversations with countries concerning their particular vote, because even though we may have the Security Council, every
0: country has an equal vote. Right, right. And, and, you know, you, you talk about the specialized agencies and the, the different uh, agencies within the U.N. auspices. You know, COVID-19, I think, really showed the danger uh, in this global pandemic of excluding Taiwan from the W.H.A., W.H.O. And you, you mentioned ICAO and others speaking more specifically about Taiwan. You know, how do you see the importance of Taiwan's participation within the UN system and at these specialized agencies? And, and what should the current administration be doing to expand Taiwan's presence across the UN system?
1: Well, I think you know there could be several responses to that question. And the first is Taiwan proves herself. She, she has been an exemplary country you know instead of running away and retreating president Tsai continues to lead she leads you know very uh, um, proudly but she reminds me very much of, Chan- of of chancellor merkel and she's very firm but almost humble but she's extremely strong and you know i think that if you if you look at taiwan and how you know their exemplary behavior and what they what they have given to the world And then you look at the U.N. and you see such a flawed system and the fact that they allow murderous regimes to be on particular committees. It really gives you this great divide. So if Taiwan can continue with their, you know, democracy and continue with their international advocacy and the way that that. Obviously, they're really making, especially with COVID, with their semiconductor, they're really making a stance in the world. People are acknowledging almost like when President Trump first came into office and China became the household conversation. I believe that we're seeing a real turn here where Taiwan is because people understand that they're trying to purchase, whether it's vehicles or whether it's whatever it may be that. Taiwan's now becoming kind of front and center and people are questioning why is the Biden administration not taking advantage of the lack of automotive industry, the, the decrease of being able to purchase the lack of products that are required that have semiconductor chips. Why they should be focusing on why is this? That's because Taiwan who produces most of them helped all of us to stay virtually connected. So I think we could really use this right now and and bring Taiwan to the front. And I'm actually seeing it. But then again, you know, we do surround ourselves with like-minded people, don't we? (laughs) We're always talking about the same thing. And, you know, look at, look at how Taiwan with its campaign, Taiwan can help and how they shared their COVID-19 best practices. And they donated PP, PPE all over the world. I mean, I, I, I firmly feel, as much as China tried to negate that, most of the Chinese PPE was flawed. It continues to be so. Taiwan, to me, their actions speak so much louder than China's words or threats. And, you know, if Blinken can just take his words of, of encouraging the WHO Director General to invite Taiwan as an observer to the WHA, then then we might be able to see something positive come out of the administration. But, you know, right now I'm just seeing words.
0: Well, and, and I can I can personally vouch on the PPE side because the when the the White House was uh, first addressing the pandemic in the very early days, it was masks that said made in Taiwan, that uh, the entire White House Situation Room were wearing uh, while while uh we were we were trying to keep uh, the president's operations center running uh, at, uh, at in a very difficult time, so when we needed it, our friends in taiwan came through and and gave us uh, the masks we needed so i I can very much relate to that but ambassador you you mentioned um you mentioned the observer status and and you know getting taiwan observer status in key mm-hmm. organizations uh, and, and u n agencies has been since we, we haven't been able to get full membership because of the, the political dynamics, observer status has been one of the, the fallbacks. Um, can you talk a little bit more about, you know, where we could potentially look to expand observer status, but also what are, what are some of the, the challenges for Taiwan of only having observer status in places where full membership uh, can be very, very important? Well,
1: you know, I may have a little bit of a different take on this. I feel like Taiwan needs to put less of an emphasis on inclusion in areas like the WHA or obviously the WHO because it's been a disaster. And I think that this would reduce China's moral victory. Um, I think by reducing their moral victory, it doesn't affect the countries that China's, you know, they they, they, they threaten these countries when it comes to any vote that encourages Taiwan or or any vote for Israel for that matter, but they always try to put their CCP language. So I think that, you know, Taiwan shouldn't abandon all their efforts, but I firmly believe that, you know, after five years of the same story where Beijing has effectively blocked Taiwan, I think that we should focus on Taiwan to engage at a bilateral level and also engage through its global cooperation and training framework workshops, because to me, there's nothing better than focusing on the quad, focusing on, you know, really, really, on the Taiwan Strait and the importance, and trying to work and expand all the bilateral organization or cooperation between areas that would directly benefit, especially within the Taiwan Strait, the South China Sea, and that area. And and another another area that I think is important that maybe um, I think is Robert O'Brien could be very encouraging is to to maybe suggest to Taiwan that they could be a part of reducing tensions between South Korea and Japan. Hmm. And, you know, can you imagine that, you know, they're such President Tsai and her team. They're so solid. And and when they when they speak, you listen. And I think they could play a real unique role, especially with the high tensions that are between Japan and Korea and and on the trade front. So that might be a place for them that would give them a really a front row seat in that area.
0: Yeah, that's actually a a very interesting way we talk about expanding taiwan's diplomatic space, but expanding taiwan's role in terms of being almost an an arbitrator between uh you know two countries who have had a long time dispute that's a, a, a novel and, and really interesting proposal um'd love to to talk more and hear more about that at some point um but you know just going back a little bit, you talked about Thinking about the UN system and the way uh, you mentioned the bullying and the 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 way that mm-hmm. China asserts itself and its authoritarian approach. Um, For people that don't follow the U.N. system on a regular basis, I mean, what does that look like when you're sitting in the U.N. every day as our ambassador and you're watching how the Chinese operate in that system? What does that bullying and authoritarianism, what does that look like and how do we prevent it from winning the day at the U.N.?
1: Well, let's talk about just within the Security Council. You know, they have used their veto only 16 times. So this is less than any of the other P five countries. But there they you can see this 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 sense of um, courageousness through them and, and I'll look at that as a negative obviously, but you can see this now because they just alone had two vetoes, which is unusual because thirteen of the other ones they were with Russia. They joined with Russia, if you know what I mean. Instead of mm-hmm. voting with, they waited and voted along with. So I think that's really important. And and then the areas that they vetoed were blocking security council action on on Syria with the cross borders and vetoing draft resolutions on Myanmar, Zimbabwe and other in Venezuela. I mean, so these are human rights concerns and they were condemning governmental behavior which it's just unacceptable. So um, you can see that they are becoming, even though they are often with Russia, you can see that they're becoming a little bit more courageous in standing out on their own, and and I have seen this directly just from the third committee. And you know, I was looking in the fiftieth anniversary of uh, Resolution twenty seven fifty eight, and if you look at the countries, and I think we need to really further further this at a when we can have a longer conversation. But if you look at the countries that voted for and with the U.S. for Taiwan to have a place in the U.N., some of the African countries voted with us. But in the third committee two years ago, we don't have any of these countries. And it just shows you, A, China's long-term planning with the Belt and Road and how they were able to become predatory lenders In these countries, because obviously you don't see the DRC, Venezuela, or South Africa, and some of the other ones voting with us on the third committee to acknowledge the human rights abuses in China. But I think at this very moment, if you look at the Belt and Road initiatives, it's kind of fallen off of a a cliff because over the past five years, their investments over like 90% has, has decreased. China and the UN has really. Um, been focused on Africa, and they have linked a very strong relationship with Africa within the Security Council. Uh, you can always count on the A3 in, in the Security Council, always t- taking China's position seriously, and they will tell us look, we would love to vote with you, but we have projects and we are financially and economically tied with China, and we can't afford not to vote with them because of our com- commercial and financial relationship. So basically, I sum that up to economic blackmail. I don't know about you, but I, that's what I call it.
0: Yeah. No, it's it, blackmail, economic coercion. It's – um, it, it, and, and we've seen it all over the world. We've seen it at the UN where you've witnessed it firsthand and, and seen what they, they've they done. And And that's a great point about – twenty seven fifty eight and you know for for those of our listeners who are not as familiar with with twenty seven fifty eight I think the the best way to explain it is you know we're we're approaching the fiftieth anniversary, and this is the resolution that changed the china seat at the u n from Taiwan to the people's Republic and what we're already seeing indications of ambassador is that uh, the the p r c is going to use this re- this anniversary, as they often do with big anniversaries, to make a larger political statement. And what we're seeing is that they may be making a political statement um, that this this resolution has something to do with Taiwan's international legal status, um, which uh-huh. it which doesn't. It's a very simple resolution about who sits in the China seat at the UN. There's no larger strategic point. There's no larger point about what Taiwan is politically or what its political status is. But that's the way that the Chinese Communist Party looks likely to, to uh, distort it for, for propaganda purposes. So as we think about that and we think about the challenge that um, we're going to have those of us who, who uh, believe that as a democratic, uh, thriving, you know, multi-party democracy, Taiwan deserves its international space, you know, we have to think about how to counter that narrative. And I'd, I'd be curious your thoughts of you know what's the best way to, for us to talk about what 2758 means uh, as we approach the 50th anniversary next month?
1: But, you know, if you look at the Sustainable Development Goals, to me, twenty seven fifty eight. First of all, it has no legal standing, in my opinion. This resolution has no legal standing, and if you look at what it what it discriminates against, it discriminates against good sense, democratic governance, global security, and global health. And if you look at the sustainable development goals that the secretary general, you know, is very very much engaged in, as well as the other countries, except for the United States, or at least under the Trump administration. Uh, This is exactly what this resolution was trying to prevent, is discriminating against. I mean, what world organization dedicated to peace and security worth its name would reject a country who is so advanced scientifically? I mean, this is the groundbreaking moment during the pandemic. Who would vote against something like that? China, because China's a mouthpiece. The World Health Organization is, is, is nothing but a mouthpiece for China. And that's my biggest concern. If they can be, be so influential with the World Health Organization, what else could they be doing with aviation security,
0: right? Right.
1: For, you know, or the infrastructure, the you know, the development, or the food and agriculture. We have to really take because this matters now. What's happening in the UN inside matters outside.
0: Yeah, and and part of the the way in which. It looks like the Chinese have been so effective in gaining that that control and and setting that agenda over things like aviation security and, and agriculture. And, and fortunately, uh, we were able to um, head it off. But, um, you know, the the uh, WIPO, you know, that that was on the chopping block for a while as well. Um one of the ways that they've been effective there is winning these elections at the specialized mm-hmm. agencies and also placing their citizens, I, I think it's fair to say, most if not all of whom are, are members of the Communist Party uh, or else they wouldn't be put forward for a, a job of, of this sensitivity <laughs> in the yeah. in the secretariat or in yeah. other parts of the UN system. Um, how do we, you know, most Americans have no idea how this works. They don't know how people get jobs there. They don't know anyone that works at the UN or in the UN system. Um, why does it matter who has these jobs? And how can the U.S. and its friends do a better job of making sure that that our citizens and our allies are holding these jobs rather than our, our biggest competitor?
1: Well, you know, the one thing China, I have seen them firsthand. They work from the bottom up so they will they will first of all they sponsor financially the junior professional officers which is called the JPO so they start out with their junior officers in this organization that Americans can be part of in any member state can be part of this organization so that's how they infiltrate from the bottom going up and these junior officers learn the system they see where there are cracks in the system where they can go in They're not particularly looking for a high-level position more than they are. Once you're in the system, it is really difficult to remove someone. So this is something that, that, you know, they're permeating from the bottom to, you know, the bottom up. We need to reiterate to the SG that he is going to have to be very strong in his position. And he is going to have to, where he sees areas that he can prevent China from really basically infiltrating, I honestly believe that that he's the one that can restore cooperation and start this dialogue because if you look in the past where ban ki moon and, and others have, have rejected, I do believe the s g is more open than most
0: mm-hmm. well, that's a and, that's... You know,
1: when you talk about Waito, can you just imagine had they had this? I mean, if we had not have recognized that they were they started working on this years in advance, and this is global intellectual property. And if there's ever a moment that was so critical, it's now. So if you can imagine how they're in a race with the U.S. and the rest of the world to advance technology like robotics and you know artificial technology and 5G wireless, can you imagine if they had had this position at WIPO?
0: Well, especially given that uh, the director of the FBI, Chris Wray, has said that uh, the greatest transfer of wealth in human history is the theft of IP by China from the United States, so the the irony there is is uh, not lost on anyone. But um, okay. I I think going to uh, kind of a broader question because you know you really did uh, earn a reputation as one of the most uh, engaged UN ambassadors on on the issue of Taiwan, probably that that the U.S. has had uh, in decades, if not ever, and and you know made a made a lot of important statements and took a lot of important actions and were really, really at the the front of this thing um, during the Trump administration. But of course, it's it's broader than the UN, the question of of China and and Taiwan competition and Taiwan's international Mm -hmm. space. And, you know, Taiwan obviously has – it's the 19th largest economy. It has bilateral relations formally with uh, a little under 15 countries in the world. It's got some form of representative office with dozens of other countries like the United States. You know, how, how can Taiwan, given its cultural and its economic uh, heft, h- how can Taiwan expand its, its diplomatic role in the world? Uh, outside of the U.N. and, and just more broadly um, as we go forward in, into this decade?
1: You know, I think right now is, is the time could not be better with the strengthening of the quad. You know, George Bush you know, started this quad in 2007, and then President Trump was the first to actually have the ministerial and then to really strengthen and bring the quad back. I think there's no time is more important than for Taiwan to try to develop these relationships. I mean, Japan has come out in, you know, in defense of Taiwan, uh, Australia. I mean, if you look at what has happened, you, we're starting to see increasingly strong talk in support of Taiwan if, because of the the, the deal with, supplies Australia with nuclear submarines and you, you see this, this launch of the European strategy for greater engagement in the Indo-Pacific. I mean, I think China's seeing that, whether or not we're saying it outwardly, China's really – the tension with them I think is over the fact that they believe we, we, as in Australia, everyone that's engaged in this Indo-Pacific understands our obligation to protect Taiwan and to show Taiwan that they can protect themselves. So I, I firmly believe – you, did you see where Lithuania has asked their citizens to get rid of their Chinese-made cell phones? Yep. And one of the, one of the reasons – where they were blocking search terms related to democracy or Taiwan independence.
0: No, absolutely. And Lithuania has shown itself um, to really punch way above its size in terms of, of having a you know, standing up to Chinese pressure as it relates to its relationship with Taiwan. And it's it's been a, it's been a really impressive model for how other countries can resist Beijing's coercion um, when they just want to have a normal bilateral relationship with Taiwan.
1: Yeah. And, you know, and I think this week we should all be watching outside the UN is as Biden uh, hosts the leaders from the quadrilateral. I think we should be watching the conversation because if we we didn't really obviously see a lot of conversation concerning Taiwan inside the UN. But I firmly believe, especially with with Taiwan's application for the uh, CPTPP, I, I, I think that's going to be a conversation within the quad, in my opinion, mm-hmm. Um i don't know that they're going to be accepted but i think it's very smart for president Tsai to go ahead after china had already applied because once if china had been accepted then they certainly would have not they would never be in this group um so maybe they'll allow both of them they certainly won't allow china and not taiwan i can't see that happening but i i, I firmly believe that um this could be a long drawn out process because we're going to see more and more people take up Taiwan as, as their mantle as a democracy.
0: Yeah, no, it, it, it's it's um, the the economic side of it absolutely is is a fascinating one, and, and it plays into the larger strategic questions that we're all we're all thinking about. And Ambassador, that that kind of leads me to my my final question here is. You know, thinking about the, the opportunities and the challenges in the U.S.-Taiwan relationship over the next couple of years, obviously, you know, the free trade agreement that we, we were not able to get done under President Trump, uh, that's that's certainly one of the, the major issues that's kind of hanging out there, but but there are others. What are some of the things you see as, as really the, the main opportunities for the U.S. And, and Taiwan to strengthen that relationship in the coming years?
1: Well, I think what we need to talk about is, is that this is not really a battle between the U.S. and China, but between the Chinese Communist Party, authoritarianism and freedom. Yeah. And yeah. Taiwan stands for freedom. And we just really need to hit on that, that they are an island of democracy. Uh, the people, the last 20 years, the Taiwanese have only known freedom. So we've got a whole generation there that has such a pride in Taiwan. Because that's all they know. So I think we really need to focus on this generation. Um, We need to draw a lot of comparisons with the Taiwanese, this generation to Israel and understanding that, you know, they are two tiny democracies and yes, they they might be fighting over overwhelmingly odds, but Taiwan understands that their first line of defense is their own people. President Tsai understands that. And, and, you know, Another area that that I've been trying to understand better is what's more effective to give Taiwan and, and China clarity as to where the US and other countries stand, the quad specifically, or do we keep being ambiguous? You know, part of me says if we are we give them clarity then we give the Taiwanese, this generation the willingness to continue with their 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 fight for independence, to continue and to want to have a strong military because they're the first line of defense against external threats. So we have to really focus on the importance to maintain diplomatic relationships with these countries that, that recognize them. You can't, I mean, obviously we want to have more countries, yes, but they really need to themselves strengthen those ties with countries the, you know, the Pacific Island countries, as you and I discussed earlier. They need to look to them and say, how can I help you?
0: Yep, uh, absolutely. And, and
1: you know, I firmly believe that they can be a force for freedom, especially with the island countries. And especially knowing, you and I both know, the threats that the island countries have been under by China because of the relationship they have with Taiwan. So Taiwan can't needs to focus on these countries and have bilateral relationships. Even if it's a small relationship, it's still something that is recognized and it could lead to, to relationships within the quad.
0: Absolutely. Well, Ambassador Craft, uh, thank you so much for your time. I think, uh, people will find this to be a, a very useful conversation, particularly with, uh, resolution 2758 approaching its 50th anniversary. And with, uh, the, the UNGA, um, going on in New York this week. So ambassador, uh, as always, thank you for your time.
1: Thank you very much, and you know, let's just keep watching outside the UN this week, and, and let's hold the Biden administration accountable to do the right thing. Because, as you know, if, if to not do it is is being a coward, and, and that's not who we are. We are the superpower, and I hope that uh, he stands firm with the Quad and that Taiwan comes out of this um, feeling very confident about where we stand.
0: Couldn't have said it better, Ambassador Kelly Craft. Thank, thank you so much.
1: My pleasure. Thanks.